please turn with me to our passage for this morning. We are going to be in Philippians today. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 3. You can also find this printed in your bulletin, and I believe it should be up on the screen right behind me. We're going to read verses 4 through 11, and basically what we'll cover today is what Paul teaches, what the Lord teaches about the implications of the resurrection. So let's dive right in. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are you passionate about? That's what we're going to talk about today. This morning, as we dive into Philippians chapter 3, we'll talk about passion. One of my passions, and if you know me at all, you've already discovered this, is food. I love food. Charlottesville is a great town to live in if you love food, if you're passionate about food. We've got a ton of great restaurants. And one of my particular favorites is this thing called sushi. You may be grossed out by it. That's perfectly fine. Many people are. But I love the texture and the flavor of raw fish. And it's very difficult to do it well. So I'm passionate about it. And so I'm always, when I come to a new town, I suffer by going through Google very fastidiously. I I look at every uh, TripAdvisor, you know, different approval for restaurants. And I, I go through Yelp and I make sure that we find not just a sushi restaurant, but the best sushi restaurant in the town that we go. I am passionate about sushi. What are you passionate about? Maybe your career, maybe your family, maybe it's a hobby that you love a lot and that your family knows you spend way too much money on. Perhaps it's music, perhaps it is entertainment, movies, TV, and the like. I'm not sure what yours is, but 
everyone, to some degree, has a passion. Because if you look at the definition for passion, it means an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. And the dictionary gives an example. The English have a passion for gardens. I think that's pretty true. It also means fervor, ardor, intensity, enthusiasm, emotion, excitement, commitment, vigor, animation, zest, zestfulness. That's passion. Now, the word, and the reason I want to talk about it in the context of the passion of Christ this morning, it comes from a Latin word, pati. And that Latin word means to suffer. You may have heard of this phrase, the passion of Jesus Christ. In fact, several years ago, there was a movie that Mel Gibson put out that actually titled itself, The Passion of Jesus Christ. And it's focused on the suffering that Jesus went through from the time that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane to the time that he was killed on the cross. That is, the passion of Jesus Christ. And here is another way to put it. We suffer, and Jesus being the supreme example of this, for those that we love. We suffer for those that we love. It's an intense desire to help, to be with, to be near those that you love. That is passion, and that's why it's called the passion of Christ. You know, I think it's very important for us to understand not just, and we're going to talk for a minute about the passion of Christ, but how knowing the passion of Christ personally, how knowing it intellectually, how knowing it in the depths of our heart actually begins to disrupt and reverse our own passions. That's precisely what's happening here in chapter 3 of Philippians. You're seeing Paul talk about how the passion of Jesus Christ has disrupted and completely reversed the passions in his own life. It's dramatic, and it can happen to anyone, at least according to Paul. So let's dive into those three things. You'll find them if you'd like to take notes in that insert that's in your bulletin. We're going to move from the passion of Christ to the passion of religion, and then finally we'll end with the passion of knowing Christ. So first, let's just briefly talk about the passion of Christ. Jesus came and he suffered. And he talked about it like this in another passage of the New Testament. He says, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you know what, it's not supposed to be like this among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant or slave. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is talking here about his mission, about what he came to do, why he came to earth, why God took on human flesh. There is a passion to serve. There is a passion to give life, his life, as a ransom for many. It's what, it's what his death and his resurrection are all about. He came because he had an intense desire for the salvation of his people. He loves the world. It says that, John 3.16. You've probably heard it before. He loved, for God so loved the world. His intense passion was love for the world. But he knew the only way that salvation could happen would be through sending Jesus Christ to the earth to save his people. 
there is, there is just an incredible amount of passion there. And we believe that he really did, that God really did come to earth and that he really did die for our sins and that he really did in real time and history raise from the dead to complete the process of defeating death and defeating sin. Historical fact. We read about it earlier today in Matthew chapter 28. And I'm not going to get into all the nuances of how to defend the resurrection and did it really happen. We don't have time for that today. We're going to focus on Philippians chapter 3. But we believe, this church believes, I believe that it actually happened in real history. That it is a historical event. And you're going to see as we move down through Philippians 3 why that is so important. You'll, You'll see as we go on with our sermon this morning. It matters for us if it was true. It really does. And there's all kinds of eyewitnesses that prove the truth of the resurrection. I mean, there's literal hundreds, and you can read about those in Scripture. There's the way the New Testament was written, even Matthew chapter 28, would only be written if it was a historical fact in that way. He gives, Matthew gives actual plausible evidence for a theory that was floating at the time that disproved the resurrection. Did you catch that? He says there was this rumor floating amongst the Jews and in the passage read in Matthew 28 that you know, they stole the body in the middle of the night. You would never, ever write that if you were trying to make up a myth. You would, it would be absolutely absurd. This was a true historical event. Okay, and why does that matter? Well, it matters because of what I've already talked about this morning. I've talked about the fact that the passion of Jesus Christ completely disrupts and reverses our own passions. Let's dive right in. Let's start with the passion of religion. This is what Paul is talking about at the beginning of our passage this morning. He's saying, I was, this is Paul talking, I was incredibly invested and passionate about my self-justification and my self-righteousness. And he describes it for us. He says, I was in the inner circle. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was awesome. Is basically what he's saying. And he's talking about the pedigree that we all get from being attached to a certain tribe. Everyone has this. We feel it. You know, you feel the sense of, I'm attached to a certain tribe, so I'm probably a little better than you, than them, or than those people. That's the first cry of religion gripped onto the heart of a person. The first cry is, I'm better because of the tribe that I'm a part of. He was born into, quote, Jewish money. He was in the right social club when it came to access with God. He was in the most exclusive crowd the world had ever known, the people of God. And the reality is that he determined that this was not all that big of a deal to him. Now, think about yourself for a minute. Let's, let's, Zoom right into the present day. Do you have a circle that you are passionate to join or that you want to stay in really badly? Do you care about what tribe you're attached to? You know, I've heard it said that more important for your career is the network that you are born into than your level of intelligence. Your tribe matters. And a lot of us take pride in our tribe. And in in what we were born in, it's, uh, let's be honest, it's really easy in Charlottesville right now to take pride in your tribe, okay? <laughs> you won the national championship, we won the national championship. It's hard not to get excited about that. 
You know, but the question you have to ask yourself when you take pride in your tribe is, you know, do I, do I care too much? Am I too passionate about the fact that I have a degree from XYZ school or that I'm trying to get into XYZ club? You know, people will even suffer. And this, is, this kind of attaches that whole passion part. People will suffer to get into the right tribe. Just go down the street. There's these things called fraternities. <laughs> there are people that have suffered tremendously to get into the right tribe just down the street. Go ask any med student. Do you have to suffer to get into the right tribe when it comes to your medical degree? I promise you they will say, absolutely. It's been horrible, <laughs> my entire experience. We do this. We have these hurdles that we put in front of people to make sure that they are going to be prideful one day about the tribe that they're a part of, that they had to work so hard and suffer to get in. You know, I was thinking about myself even this week, and I was driving to the coffee shop. This was uh, later in the week, and I, and I was like, you know what? I don't think I want to go to the coffee shop dressed like this. Is that ridiculous? You know, I had shorts on, and it was like a long sleeve button-down. It didn't quite look right. And then I had tennis shoes. And if you know the coffee shops in Charlottesville, that's not a good combination. You know, you need your, like, leather boots. You know, thankfully, I had these glasses on, which work well in coffee shops in Charlottesville. But I I just thought to myself, Nathan, you're so guilty of this. You're passionate about it being attached to a certain tribe. And you want to hold that up as something that gives you value and worth. Is it something you hold up to give yourself value and worth? Something even you hold up to God to give yourself value and worth? The tribe that you're attached to. Here's what Paul says about it. And is Calvin in here? I don't think he is. I think he went with the kids. Is he in here? Oh, he's going to appreciate this. Ready, Calvin? Paul says it's worthless. It's trash. It's poop. That's what Paul says. It's poop. He says, stop suffering for your club. Stop taking pride in your, in your tribe. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it is a passion for self. And it is a passion for self-justification and self-righteousness. That's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. Then he says, well, let's move on. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee or I am a Pharisee. Now, this is Paul talking for just a minute about his achievements. If you were going to be in that crowd, the Pharisees, holy mackerel, you had to work your tail off. Pretty much from when you were a small child. You had to memorize massive chunks of the scriptures. You had to know the laws backwards and forwards. You would have studied until midnight and beyond. He worked incredibly hard to be a part of this group called the Pharisees. And he was saying, this was my achievement. Translation for modern day, he was an American success story. Rags to riches. He was the owner of the company. He was the CEO. He had incredible achievements. He was level 50 in every video game he ever played. His kids were well behaved. He was the employee of the year. This man had done the impossible. He was a Pharisee. It was insanely difficult to become a Pharisee in that day. This religious group that was trained to teach others in the law. And here again, we have to ask ourselves, 
Do you have a passion for your achievements? Is that what really drives you? Is that what you plan to hold up to others as the proof of your value and worth? Or to hold up to God as the proof of your value and worth? Are you already holding this up to the people around you? And just ask them. They know. (laughs) Here's what Paul says. Worthless. Trash. Poop. Stop suffering for your achievements. Stop taking pride in your accomplishments because ultimately, end of the day, it's a passion for self. It's a passion for self-justification and self-righteousness. Let's move on. He doesn't leave much uncovered here. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Let's translate. Paul moves into his politics. He was a man of action. He did not just protest against those who disagreed with him. He went into their homes and had them arrested and he beat them and occasionally he killed them. That's how passionate he was for his own tribe. He was a man who fought loud and hard and fast for his tribe. He would not let his tribe lose. He defended the traditions of his tribe. He defended the beliefs of his tribe. He defended the people of his tribe. He defended the history of his tribe. And he made sure that his tribe would stay on top. That's what he did. And so he beat people. He killed them. He had them arrested. Because they disagreed with where he stood. I don't know if you're ready to pounce on those who disagree with you maybe take a different position or in a different tribe, but we have to ask ourselves the same question. I remember for myself, I I was reminded of this from an article that came in the mail this week, and it was the cover of, I went to Wheaton College, and it was this Wheaton College magazine. See, I'm already talking about my achievements. See, it's terrible. But there was this man on the front you probably heard of, Andrew Brunson. You may have heard of him. He was arrested overseas and imprisoned for a long time, and his wife was on the cover. They both went to Wheaton College. And I was reading the article, and I realized that he was in Traber dorm when he was at college. That's the, that's the dorm I was in. And the thing that I remember most about Traber dorm is that we always hated and attacked Fisher dorm. They were the enemy. And you know what? As good college students, we took action. We would gather large pallets of eggs water balloons, and literal bags of trash. And we would go late at night over to Fisher Dorm and make sure that they knew that we were better than them. And we attacked them. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were people of action. Traber Dorm. Over for, now, admittedly, they did the same thing to us. But pause again. The Lord is asking us to, to go, stop suffering. <laughs> stop suffering for your tribe. Stop taking pride in it. Because again, end of the day, Paul's saying it's a passion for self, ultimately. Now, I have to make a qualification on this one so that we don't misconstrue this. This doesn't mean Paul saying, don't stand up for what is right, or don't stand up for the truth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, when it's Fisher dorm and when it's Traber dorm, it's pride. It's self-justification and it's self-righteousness. Finally, it keeps going. I know, y'all, we got to go to the hard part first, and then we get to the good stuff. I mean, or I should say, the happier stuff. Finally, Paul begins to say, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's saying, look, I was an incredibly good person. You think you're a good person? (laughs) No, no, no. 
Paul was like, <laughs> according, to the, according to the law, I was blameless. I was the best person. I not only was nice, which, come on, fine. He's like, yeah, other people have that. They're nice. I followed the law to the letter. He's saying, I washed my hands specifically every time I had a meal or every time I went into a building. He says, I only took a certain number of steps on, sa- on the Sabbath because I was an incredible Pharisee. He's saying, you think you're a rule follower? You think you're a rule keeper? Mm, you have no idea. No clue. I'm the best, is what Paul's saying here. He, fought, he was a good person on every level. And he's saying he loved it. He loved it. He knew that he was ultimately, because he was following even the law of God, better than the people around him. We have to ask ourselves, do you live on a scale? Do you try to be good and do the right thing and then become an anxious mess when you screw up? Or worse, and this is what Paul did, when others around you mess up and it's your chance to judge them for what they've done, do you hold up your good deeds to God and to others as the thing you get value and worth from? Is it what you hold up to your friends and family to where you find your value and worth? Paul says right here in our passage, it's right here, worthless. Trash, poop. That's what he says. What's Paul's point? Why and how did he get to the point in his life where all that he did and all that he built, he now considered by, to be rubbish? He met Jesus. That's it. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I want us to think and pause and stop and reflect on that for just a minute. He met the living Christ. That is what changes a person's life. An encounter with the living Christ. This is why it's incredibly important that the resurrection actually happened. Because if it did not it is impossible for a human being to encounter the living Christ. Here's what I mean. We have to be careful about what does not change a person's life. The idea of Christ does not change a person's life. The idea without historical truth in the event. The teachings of Jesus divorced from the truth of his life and being born and having died and having been resurrected on this earth do not change a person's life. The spirit of Jesus living on does not change a person's life. The idea of Jesus passed down to the church does not change a person's life. But that's what many people would say. That's what it is. That's what Christianity is, right? It's the teachings of Jesus that have been passed down. But that is not at all what Paul is talking about, and that's not at all what the scriptures teach. This was Now, I admit that position that removing all the supernatural truth about Jesus actually having lived on the earth and actually having died and actually having been resurrected. I know that was more popular in the mid-20th century. Nonetheless, it still remains. And we have to be careful. Because that's not what Paul encountered and that is not what changed his life. The idea of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. It was an actual personal encounter with the risen, living Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, you can read about it in Acts chapter 8. Now, now let's, let's pause here for a second, though. We also have to be careful of the other side of that fence. We have to be careful 
that we remember, that we are remind ourselves from the Scriptures here in Paul, that the cold, hard fact of the resurrection, as a part of a collection of head knowledge, even if we acknowledge it to be true, without a personal experience and encounter with Jesus Christ, does not change a person's life. It does not make the profound difference. You can believe the resurrection actually happened in real history and still have never actually encountered the risen and living Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, and the scriptures say throughout the New Testament, throughout all of the (laughs) scriptures, it's always and forever both. It is the truth of the historical fact that Jesus came, he died, and was raised, and a real personal living encounter with Jesus Christ that truly changes someone to say what Paul is saying in this passage. That I consider those things to be rubbish. Let's head to our final point. The passion of knowing Christ. Paul uses this word, ginonai. That's a word that means no. He says, I want to know the living Jesus Christ. It's the word that comes from the Hebrew yada, which means an intimate knowledge. It is something the Bible uses to describe the intimacy of the sexual relationship in marriage. I know. It's kind of wild. But he's saying, I want to know Jesus Christ, not sexually, don't hear me wrong, but I want to know him with an intimacy that can only be described as the closest of friendships, as something akin to lovers. He is so real in my life. He is so a part of how I think, what I do, how I do the things I do. It's kind of like a pair of glasses, right? I don't spend much time, I'm doing it right now, so whatever, looking at my glasses. I don't pull them off and be like, whoa, this is amazing. Wow, that's so incredible. But my glasses, like Jesus Christ being in a person's life, are always the thing through which I view everything else. It is that personal relationship with Jesus that absolutely colors everything. It colors what Paul was talking about with his achievements and the tribe that he was a part of. It's going to change everything if Jesus is that close and that personal. He says, I want to know Jesus Christ. He's thinking about a personal encounter with Christ that is life-changing, that is ongoing. And then he says, I want to know also the power of his resurrection. Now, he's not separating this from the person of Jesus. He's saying, I want to know the person of Jesus in the power of his resurrection. The resurrection we're talking about today, it's Easter Sunday. He wishes to know Jesus alive and creatively at work to save him from himself, to transform him from bad to good, to propel him forward towards a life of service to others, to inaugurate newness of life, life in the Spirit, to resurrect him from death and going towards life, to quicken and stimulate his whole moral and spiritual being. Major change. Huge difference is what Paul is talking about. That's what he wants. That's what he is passionate about. And then he says, there's just two more little points. He says, there's a constant choice I have to make in, in regards to this. He's like, I actually participate in this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I have to continually consider myself dead to sin 
and alive to Jesus Christ. It's something that I must practice, that I must bring to memory, that I must apply in my life in the different areas, that I'm actually dead to sin, that I don't, I don't have to do the thing that I keep compulsively doing as I bring Jesus to mind, as Christ, as the living Lord with me, helps me to conquer the sins in my life. That's what he's talking about when he says, he says, I continually conform myself to the truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, this is a part of how I do life. It's what is in front of me when I wake up in the morning, when I'm going about my business, and when I go to sleep at night. The fact that I am dead to death and to sin, and I'm alive to Christ. It is the very focus of everything that I do and everything that I have. And then finally, finally, Paul says, there's the hope of attaining the resurrection from the dead. And he adds this at the very end to remind us that though we can, in real time, today, experience the risen living Christ, that there's also something future. And this is classic to Paul's teaching. The idea of there already being a taste of the, re- of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in real time in his life, but also that there's something even more glorious to come. He says the best is yet to come because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, as a phrase and then as a story, the passion of Christ disrupts and reverses our passions. We go from an incredible passion for self, self-justification, self-righteousness, to a passion for Jesus. We just want to be with him. We just want to be near him. We just want to hold him. We just want him to be a power in our life. We just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. The way that I thought about this this week was when Jesus has a personal encounter with a woman at the well. This is recorded in John chapter 4. And this is the, the same idea of the, the true Jesus Christ, the living Jesus Christ, meeting with someone. And the way that he meets with her, he says, look, if you know me, he says, I have living water to give. And this living water is going to dramatically redirect your entire life. He's like, can I have a drink of water? And she's like, she goes into this whole diatribe about, I can't believe you're asking me for a drink of water. You know, men aren't supposed to interact with women these days. And I'm 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 a Gentile, you're a Jew, and we're not supposed to interact. So there's this whole other side story going on. But the basic point is, Jesus says, your life right now is a drain, and I want to turn you into a fountain. He's like, he's like, He's not accusing her when he says, you've had five husbands. He's not saying, oh, shame on you. Oh, I'm judging you. I'm above you. No. He says, look at your life. You're a drain. You're sucking life from the people around you. You're incredibly needy. You need people around you so that you can hold up your achievements. You can hold up these different, your tribe. You can hold up these things so that they can tell you that you're so amazing. You drain the people around you. And he's like, I want to give you living water. I want to fill you. And it's going to be me who fills you. And then guess what? You're going to become a refresher. People are going to get near you and they're going to be like, whoa, wow. I want to drink more of that. 
there's so much love and care coming out of that person. You literally are changing the world one person at a time. But y'all, we can only find it in Jesus Christ. Please, please, Christ Central Church, do not look elsewhere. The Bible says everything else is a broken cistern that cannot hold water. The only way you can be filled, the only way you can get into all those gaps you know are in your your heart and all those empty places and all those scary dark places, the only way is Jesus. That's it. An encounter with the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for this church often. I pray for myself often that we would have exactly that. I had a moment even this week where I was praying for a man who was extremely anxious, sitting on my back porch, literally shaking from anxiety. And I started to speak the words of Jesus. I am with you always to the end of the age. I will will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I love you. And I, I heard and I felt those very words being spoken to me by Jesus Christ. Guess what? Transformative. Transformative. Let's pray. Jesus, this day is about you. This day is from you. This day is for you. This day is to you. And so we honor and we celebrate you, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, I don't know where everyone in this room is on the journey, but I pray that you would continue to move us from a passion for self to a passion for Jesus and by extension and by that revolutionary work in our heart, a passion for others. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that has never had a personal encounter with you, Jesus, that today would be the day that you would come and power and that you would heal the broken places, and that you would do your work of transformation. Lord, thank you that because you were raised from the dead, we can still encounter you all the time. That as the living Jesus Christ, you are always available to us. You are always willing to come and be with us. You are always the one who is intimate with us. You, Lord are the only person who will never betray us. We have been betrayed by so many, Lord. We even feel the betrayal of those close to us this morning. Lord, we have been forsaken by all. Or one day they will die and we will be alone, Lord. But we know, may we know in a real way, just as Paul the Apostle knew, that you alone will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are the one who will be with us till the end of the age. Oh, we want to know you, Jesus. I pray that you would show yourself alive and real here this morning. And it's in your name that we pray.